Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the events unfolding in this season of racial upheaval and we hope change. I'm independent journalist Georgia Fort. Joining me this week is Faven Goresiker. This week is a special episode. Anthony could unfortunately not be with us. He had another obligation in Duluth this week, but... With us is one of our reporters within the Racial Reckoning Project, Faven. Thank you so much for being here with me this afternoon. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, It's always exciting to be on a podcast. You know, I'm so excited for you, Faven, because you started your journalism career uh, within the Racial Reckoning Project and have since blossomed so much. You were uh, one of the... uh, one of the reporters in the courtroom this week for the Kimberly Potter trial. Can you talk about what that experience was like, um, not just being in the courtroom, but for you being a young journalist of color, having an opportunity of that magnitude? Yeah, um, it was definitely exciting. Uh, a new experience. Um, I had never been in a courtroom before, so I was expecting like this very movie-type, like, super airy courtroom that has all of these seats and there's these very dramatic moments. Um, And it was just like a large meeting room. Um, And then seeing such a like influential event that so many people are, you know, looking to, to kind of see what happens in um, and then being a reporter and kind of being part of that uh, truth telling experience um, was very humbling. Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, really great to be in there. Uh, they're only letting two reporters in every day. Um, and so I was seated next to someone that I recognize and is kind of a really longtime um, media person in the Twin Cities. Um, and so it was cool to be like, I am also a journalist. Uh, and, you know, I am a reporter and people care about what I have to say. And, um, you know, they're interested in in what I see as well. And just elaborate for folks what happened that day that you were in the courtroom. Was there anything that surprised you? I know the specific day you were in the courtroom, it was for jury selection. Were there things that you observed that uh, just stood out to you specifically? Yeah, I mean, the whole process is so fascinating because it is so kind of procedural and regular, but Um, the people that they're choosing are going to decide on something that so many people care about. Um, And that in some ways is kind of a reflection of our justice system's ability to um, work. Um, And so I guess, yeah, it was interesting seeing um, how the the different attorneys respond to certain jurors and their experience. Um, All of their decisions made sense to me, but um, definitely had a lot of questions about, um, you know, like who is considered a fair and impartial juror and what experiences create doubt for the counsel or for the judge around um, someone's ability to serve a fair um, a decision. Um, and there was one person in particular who um, seemed very, like, uh, neutral and she had... Um, and she, you know, continued to testify that she would be an impartial juror, but um, there was something about uh, her education and I think 
it was uh, her social media posts that uh, caused doubt for the defense and they struck her. Um, and then, yeah, some other people who, or I mean, there was another person in particular who who knew Kim Potter or her friend had had a negative experience with her. Um, and she was very much like, I cannot be uh, a juror because I can't remove my experience um, she had a family member who was killed by a police officer and had lived near where Dante Wright was killed. Um, and so, yeah, I think even that question of can you be a fair and impartial juror um, is interesting because it's, you know, you're deciding for yourself and some people are choosing to be honest and upfront because they recognize that bias. But yeah, I don't know. It's it, a, a lot of like questions arise. This is Racial Reckoning, the Arc of Justice. Here's Faven Gorinskaher with today's update. Judge Chu dismissed an East African immigrant Thursday over concerns about a language barrier. Earlier in the week, a Hispanic woman was also excused over language concerns. Defense used peremptory challenges to strike two jurors, a first-year law student who has been vocal on social media about previous police trials, and a woman whose friend quit the Brooklyn Center police force. If you are just joining us, we are discussing jury selection for the upcoming Kimberly Potter trial, which is slated to begin on December 8th. Faven uh, was one of the reporters in the courtroom for jury selection. I was also in the courtroom for one of the days of jury selection. Uh, Faven, I know that you have at least one more day that you'll be in the courtroom during the trial uh, what what goes through your mind as you think about uh, this trial uh, playing out, what it means not just for Minnesota, but what it means nationally in terms of the movement for police accountability? And, um, you know, it could go one of two ways, right? And, and so as you think about this trial, um, which is getting ready to start, uh, what are some of the things that come up for you? I mean, I think there's always that thing of, uh, regardless of the decision that's made, um, that doesn't necessarily impact the larger system, um, or it doesn't immediately impact it in a way, because um, we saw that, you know, this uh, shooting happened during the trial of Derek Chauvin, um, and we're just here at another trial for another police officer, and so... Um, Whatever the decision is, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that or prevent um, other deaths in the future. Um, and so there's still a lot of work that needs to be done um, to, to address that. Um, but I think it also kind of renews interest and work around the issue. Um, it, it's a good question. I guess I haven't thought that far ahead. Um, but it, like in in the past few months, it has seemed a little like calmer as you know we kind of settle into winter and the holiday season. Um, last year seems a bit far away, but this kind of brings back attention to police reform um, and and the justice system's role in it. Um, I guess what are you thinking about as you as as we approach the day of uh, the actual start date of the trial? 
Well, you know, I I think a lot about the the witness lists that have been published on both the prosecution and defense side. The former chief of police in Brooklyn Center is going to be taking the stand in defense of Kimberly Potter, which is something very different than what we saw in the Chauvin trial. You know, in the Chauvin trial, for the first time, we saw the police chief testify against his officer, right? And so I think that will be, um, you know, I, I think that could definitely help leverage uh, some some support for Kimberly Potter to have the chief of police testifying on her behalf. We also know a, a difference in between this trial and the Chauvin trial is that Potter plans to testify as well. And and so we'll hear from her when she made that claim that it was an accident that she meant to grab her taser and not her gun. We're going to hear from her on how an accident like that could transpire, right? And and so with all of these um, different elements, I think then the Chauvin trial, it is likely that the outcome could be different. And so then what would that mean? What, you know, so many people looked at the Chauvin verdict as a turning point, as a precedent and a blueprint for accountability um, for officers who have used excessive force. Uh, but uh, that that may not be the case, you know? And, and so obviously each case, has a different set of evidence, different circumstances, different jurors, right? So no case is the same. But in the larger context, this is a community that became the epicenter for police accountability, right? And so I still think that uh, the world is continuing to to watch how these uh, trials will play out, and not just the Kimberly Potter trial, but we saw the jury questionnaire come out for the trial of the other three officers, um, and so we still have uh, that slated for uh, January, February on a federal level, and then in March, I believe, on a state level. Um, and and so yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, a lot of the things that we we can commentate about are speculations based on the information we have now. Uh, but I I do feel like these trials will definitely have implications on the future of police reform um, and what police accountability could look like. Uh, with with that said, Faven, you know, I, I know that uh, we've also spent a lot of time within the Racial Reckoning Project uh, talking about what's happening in the community. There was a protest that happened on the first day of jury selection outside of the courtroom, and a, a driver drove his vehicle uh, through that protest the Minneapolis Police Department did receive the license plate number of that vehicle. However, they made a statement that they will not be following up with that driver. They will not um, be trying to prosecute them in any sense because uh, they say no crime was committed. What What are your thoughts about their approach to that incident? Yeah, I mean, I think they're looking at it as an isolated incident and looking perhaps at the evidence of what happened um, 
during that specific situation. Um, but for people who are protesting, um, particularly just, you know, a week after a verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse case, uh, it has a different implication, especially since, you know, Deanna Maria was killed in a similar situation where a driver, um, well, similar in that, you know, a driver went through a protest. I don't know what this driver was thinking. Um, and even years before, during uh, the protest for Jamar Clark, uh, we had a police uh, officer who was making posts, you know, encouraging people to drive through protests um, and telling people how they could get away with it. So Minneapolis is very familiar with people driving through protesters and threatening them. Um, and that was even the thing with Jaleel Stallings was he was concerned about a white supremacist driving through the streets looking to hunt down protesters. Um, so this is a fear that people have um, as they're trying to advocate for justice in certain cases um, is, you know, they're, they're concerned about these larger issues and systemic problems, but then there's also like, a more immediate threat of like when you make yourself visible, you could be harmed um, and then there might not be any repercussion for those people. And in fact, they might be supported by law enforcement um, who, yeah, might not see it as serious. Um, so I think that's the context for that. Yeah, I, I mean, there wasn't a lot of follow-up to that. I think just because it seemed like such a small event perhaps, um, but it's interesting to bring that up. I know today is the six-month anniversary of Winston Smith's passing, which um, community members have been honoring every month since uh, last June. Um, and, you know, Deanna Marie was out on the streets in the vigil for Winston Smith. Um, and so that's very much present, I think, in people's minds who, who do care about uh, police accountability and also protesters' rights. Um so, I mean, it will be interesting. I know in the next few months, we anticipate seeing um, a report about how police responded to protesters last year. Um, and that was something that was a concern in Brooklyn Center last spring was how um, the state and uh, local law enforcement responded to the protests um, in front of the Brooklyn Center Police Department. So, um, yeah, the Twin Cities definitely has a lot of concern around protecting protester rights um, and then also just kind of law enforcement response to it, that there are still questions around. Um, a lot of protesters I know were arrested or are still kind of waiting um, to go to trial or to kind of have their court dates. So there's um, a lot of like waiting. Um, uh, last session, there was also that bill that was proposed about um if people have been arrested at a protest, not being able to access like welfare or other state so supports. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's just a concern people have is like, you know, they are concerned about the general society and yet they don't get that same level of protection. What are you thinking um, as you, you know, reflect on that case and yeah, the protesters who are kind of feeling that trauma multiplied or are kind of reacting to the driver on the street? Well, I think that public safety has been the 
most significant issue in this community over the last almost two years now. And so for a person to drive into a crowd of people, whether those people were supposed to be there or not, and the police department say that they're not going to look into it or or follow up with that driver, sends a message that we are still at a place in this society where public safety is important if you look a certain way or live in a certain district um, or ha- hold specific political views. Um, because if, if that were a group of individuals who were, you know, gathering, you know, on Grand Avenue without a permit or you know, in Lake of the Isles and a car drove through, uh, there definitely would be a follow-up conversation. And so uh, my concern is that for a community uh, that has has continuously said, we are going to work together to ensure that we have um, a police department that keeps all of its residents safe, uh, I don't. I don't feel like the comment that was released by MPD's PIO is in alignment with those values that we we've heard. Um, you know, I, I think that that warrants a follow up. And and just because you do not have a permit to protest does not mean that people have a permit to act violently. Um, and so I, I was, um, you know, a, a little concerned uh, that those um, actions were just totally dismissed and, and not just dismissed, but classified by the Minneapolis Police Department's PIO as, um, as legal. They said that there was no criminal activity uh, based on the evidence that they saw. Uh, but when you think about even laws around reckless driving, you know, if I were driving down the street res- responsibly and sober and I saw a crowd of people, I would not be hitting the accelerator. Right. I would, as a responsible, sober driver, hit the brake. And if those people don't move, I would probably put my vehicle in reverse and back away from them. And to see a driver that took actions that don't align uh, with with those measures feels reckless. And reckless driving is a crime. So how do we have a PIO that's commenting on this saying that no crime was committed? Especially within that crowd, there were children um, and so, uh, you know, I when I think about that incident, I, I also can't help but think about the Rittenhouse verdict and how from so many people in the Black community, we heard concerns that just the optics of this case, without really examining the evidence, but the optics of this case, that a 17-year-old uh, white male could uh, travel across state lines kill two protesters, injure another, and be found not guilty sends a message that emboldens white supremacists 
to continue these violent attacks against protesters, right? And so here we are uh, just a few weeks later, and we're seeing another violent attack that is excused. At what point uh, do we say that maybe these are not isolated events, but that there is a pattern here? Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think, you know, I, it kind of also speaks to uh, um, this divide in public opinion around uh, the validity of policing reform and those who are asking for it. Because um, it does seem that there is a very strong sentiment um, against people who um, kind of advocate for a shift. And we saw some of that around the charter amendment uh, that Minneapolis had last fall. Um where, you know, I think people are just so against the this concept that people are protesting for that um, they're willing to excuse the lack of, like, respect for people's humanity. Um, because, yeah, it, it is a bit unreasonable to, you know, see a crowd and then choose to drive through it. Um, I don't know what, you know, this, the city's statute is around reckless driving, but um, it definitely is curious um, that they wouldn't choose to follow up around that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, Faven, I want to switch gears here. I know we've talked a lot about current events, but you are a, a budding journalist, a journalist of color. You have uh, really come into your own as a reporter through your experience with the Racial Reckoning Project. And so I'm curious from, from your vantage point, what this entire project has been like for you. And, and for those of you who are listening that are not familiar with the Racial Reckoning Project, the Racial Reckoning Project is a journalism initiative that was created by KMOJ and Ampers as uh, along with the Minnesota Humanities Center. Uh, and, you know, we have been able to work with a handful of journalists, all who happen to be women of color. And um, we've we followed what has been happening in the Twin Cities area surrounding criminal justice, um, economic, racial justice, um, the different trials. Uh, and, and, and uh, you know, just to put it uh, frankly, the racial reckoning movement, right? Uh, Faven, what has this what has it been like for you being a part of this project? Um, yeah, it's been really cool and very, I guess, validating in a sense uh, to just be out here reporting and that is what it is. Um, I mean, personally, I have, I think, mentioned that uh, it's been like a, a source of hope um, you know, living in the Twin Cities and kind of following these different um, deaths and police trials that have been happening and kind of capturing our local attention, uh, it can sometimes feel like, you know, what am I going to do? And personally, like very challenging. Um, but through this project and and following and looking for stories, I have found a lot of hope just because I'm looking out for that work that people are doing um, and, and just seeing so many incredibly talented and passionate people um, who care about their community and maybe are just doing work that isn't as visible um, or they're not in the news about it. 
Um, so I appreciate that for myself, but also um, I'm glad that I've been able to contribute to my community by, um, yeah, just elevating those people's voices and, and the work that they're doing um, and being able to kind of connect people to um, our listeners uh, and just, yeah, kind of share that, like, you know, a lot has happened over the past year and a half, but it's work that is still continuing um, and people still care about it. Um, and there's ways to get plugged in um, and, and also different ways of approaching this work too, uh, whether that's, you know, establishing a farm slash retreat or creating art. Um, there's just so many ways to contribute to, um, you know, justice work um, that, yeah, is very uplifting and inspiring for all of us, I think. Um, and yeah, I'm also like grateful to have had mentorship by people like you who are so Aww. yeah I mean yeah just, like you're very um you know available to us and um you are so bold about kind of telling the stories that need to be told um and that's such a great example I think there's all of this concern about the industry and um you know what it does to journalists of color so I feel very privileged that I am in this very supportive space where I get to tell stories the way that they should be told. Um, and yeah, just like I'm following in the tradition of people who are um, very rooted in their community and uh, yeah, just are more about the storytelling than maybe personal gain or, you know, commercial stuff. But so I guess, I mean, that's what I got out of it. What has this been like for you? I'm curious to hear too. Yeah. Well, Faven, I am equally as proud uh, to be in this project with you and continue to learn from you and Tiffany and Samantha as well. Um, I'm so proud of the work that you are doing and honored to be able to impart or support in in any way. For me, this project has created a pathway for the stories I was already telling online. It's created pathways for those stories to be distributed across airwaves throughout the entire state of Minnesota. And that is, it's important because, you know, it doesn't matter. You could be out here telling the greatest stories in the world, but if nobody hears them or reads them, they don't have access to them. It kind of, it falls on um, deaf ears for lack of a, a better phrase, right? And so uh, this has created um, a distribution channel. And um, I also was very impressed at the beginning of the project when we were translating our reporting into other languages, the ability to have the stories become accessible to communities that I otherwise on my own just simply could not reach. The most valuable piece, I think, of this project has been working with younger journalists, other women of color who want to get in this field and being able to support you all in a way that has created opportunities for you 
um, with some of the mainstream media outlets, even, you know, to I, I, what I've seen this project being is a bridge. And, and I, I will ask you to elaborate on that a little bit more, but um, we've seen some of the journalists within this program be able to take the experience within the program and use it to build their resume um, and portfolio and leverage opportunities at larger networks. And for me, four years ago, when I came back home, I had worked in the industry for 12 years and had two Emmy nominations and had actual experience in the workforce that couldn't leverage me opportunities. And so to see young folks straight out of college come into this program, gain experience, and then be hired is very encouraging that there is a shift in the media industry locally that is more open to employing people of color. And we need representation across our media platforms if we're going to truly see the change that so many people have been advocating for the last year and a half. And so with that said, Faven, can you talk about some of the opportunities that this project has opened up for you? Yeah, well, I actually, I'm, I'm not coming straight out of college and I did not major in journalism, which seems like when I'm looking at different jobs, a uh, requirement that they have asked for is like, you know, you, you have a degree in this and you also have two years of experience um, doing reporting. And so um, I think this has definitely been a really great way for me to transition from some of the community engagement that I was doing into journalism um, and provide kind of like actual pieces of like, I know how to report and tell stories um, in a, a traditional journalism way. Um, so I recently started doing more freelancing um, and yeah, it's doing the same things that I have been doing, but now I have pieces that I can point to from the racial reckoning project. Um, and I think it's, I've, I've definitely heard that it has been helpful as more people look to have kind of this racial equity lens in their stories Um and we and most people, I think, usually have beats that they cover. So really focusing on education or local government. But in this project, we kind of did everything. So um, I have now experience reporting on, you know, policy and also education and local community stories and kind of your feel good um, human interest things, uh, but also writing that in a way that is impactful and important to, you know, local community who also care about um, a racial reckoning. Um, And so that's definitely something I'm thankful for and something that I'm bringing to, you know, my freelancing opportunities and, um, you know, the job search. Um, I had probably like the best uh, job rejection call a few months ago where uh, this radio station that I had applied for and um, had asked, been asked to apply for uh, by the news director um, rejected me, but the news director called me personally to explain why and also kind of convey her condolences and also um, give me tips on what to do next. They just wanted someone with more experience, but she really appreciated the work that we've been doing with Racial Reckoning, uh, really valued 
uh, my work and my voice um, and wanted to serve as an additional contact. So I think people have been, yeah, following our project and they appreciate kind of the perspective um, that I have developed maybe from this experience. So that's something that's very exciting. Um, and I, you know, look forward to carrying with me, um, in the, yeah, in the next steps. But yeah, I'm sure everyone has a different experience about it. But uh, yeah, personally, really great. And yeah, we out here doing it. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I have been especially impressed by the bylines that some of our reporters have been able to get in mainstream media newspapers and even some of the community newspapers, uh, those things, those opportunities aren't just given to anyone. Um, individuals in here have also had their um, voices heard on radio stations across the state. And so there's just been a lot of support. I will also say uh, probably one of the, the biggest opportunities is this project has allowed independent journalists to be in the courtroom. Um, me personally, I was in the Chauvin court, uh, I was in the courtroom for the Chauvin trial as an independent journalist on my own merit. And that is a seat that's extremely challenging to get and to uh, see Ampers uh, utilize their uh, leverage as an organization to get access to the courtroom and allow journalists of color through this program to fill those seats. Uh, those are very, very rare opportunities. Um, and so I think when you you look at a project like this, it, you know, for me, I think it's it's more than just a project. It is a bridge for journalists of color. It is a feeder program. You're you're learning the skills of a journalist that even if you study in in school, you don't develop them from a textbook. You only develop them by actually going out in the community and doing the work. Um, and so, I'm I'm sad that our project is coming to a close, but I'm hopeful that this is a project people will invest in in the future and there can be a second rendition of it. Ha have you had any um moments where you've you've grieved the end of this project, so to say? Um it still hasn't hit me uh cuz it's yeah, like we're still in the middle of it and it's been so busy with preparation for the trial. Um, yeah, I definitely appreciate these collaborations that we've built, um, knowing that Ampers has played. Um, so we're part of Ampers and our uh, updates and the, this podcast is being shared with stations across the state is like a really great um, kind of like feeling of community. Um, we were also doing more... Um, stories about uh, indigenous nations um and yeah it's just really nice that like we are very community radio station oriented um you know for the people by the people uh and yeah I guess but we're still yeah it's still like traditional news maybe just being able to share our work with other journalists and um yeah uplift the the stories from people as it's awesome. Um, yeah, I guess what what about you? Like, I know you have a bunch of different projects you're working on. So maybe 
this feels like uh, a load off of your shoulders, um, or it's just kind of like a very light uh, kind of co- contribution to all the things you do. Well, I'm I'm a little sad. I have enjoyed working with other journalists and I've enjoyed, uh, you know, reporting on the radio and the community that we've built, having some form of a newsroom and not just always being out here by myself. So I'm sad. I, I'm going to miss it. I'm going to miss you guys, but I feel like we'll still be connected and we'll figure out ways to continue doing the work. So Faven, you know, on this show, we always check in with community. How are you being you in this moment? Yeah, I mean, I think lately, since it has been such a warm December and kind of November here, um, taking long walks has been really nice. Um, And I have invested in a good winter jacket. So being able to um, kind of think through stories or just um, be outside and, you know, running into people has been a way that I ground myself in just my existence, um, but also just kind of get some exercise into the day. What about you? I am being me by being fully engrossed in disseminating information. I am back on, um, I'm, I'm back in the saddle and following this trial and the developments in the community and uh, really leaning into my commitment to keep the community informed. Um, and so I, I'm being me by being an independent journalist and, and, you know, being a hard worker, working around the clock and, um, it's tough, but I know like before it's just a season. And so I'm just, I'm pushing through in this moment, but very, very focused on, on my work. Uh, Faven, thank you so much for, for joining us. And, you know, Anthony always asks me to end the episode with a quote from Dr. Joy Lewis. I'm, I'm wondering if you've, if you've listened along, if you know what that quote is and if you could do us the honors. In the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, may the revolution be healing. Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia is a production of Racial Reckoning, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities. In partnership with KMLJ Radio, the Minnesota Humanities Center, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.